Who knew? But apparently you can get to a point where the garage band just stops recording. And we got to that point. So as I was saying, this one's radio episode 642. Mwah, ah, 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 ah. Happy Halloween. Welcome back to Diz Runs Radio, where I talk with runners from all corners of the running world about running, life, and everything in between. I'm your host, Denny Cray, and it's just about time to head out the door for an easy run and a great conversation. So if you're ready, then I'm ready. Let's get started. Well, 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 here we are, end of another month, and that means it is time for another listener Q&A episode. Uh, as you know, I do these episodes each and every month, but before we dive too far into uh, the questions today, I just want to take a quick second and thank the good folks from DKMS for their continued support and partnership and relationship that we have, uh, helping each other out a little bit as we both try to make a difference in the world. Me, very superficially trying to make a difference by you know having the podcast, working with working with some athletes, helping them reach their, their running goals. DKMS, how are they trying to make a difference in the world? They're trying to, to get rid of blood cancer. Yeah, quite a bit less superficial than the difference that I'm trying to make. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm excited and, and, and continue to be honored to have DKMS on board as, a, as an advertising partner, as a, as a support uh, part part of the, the puzzle here, a supporter of, of the show. Certainly, I'm a big supporter of what they're doing. And uh, if you want to help out DKMS, get rid of blood cancer and various other blood disorders, the process is simple. All you need to do is head over to DKMS.org. And uh, request a free swab kit. And what they'll do is they'll send you a, a little package in the mail. It's got some information in it. It's got the, the little container with a couple of Q-tips. You, you rub the Q-tips on the inside of your mouth. You put them back in the container. Postage, page, postage paid envelope. Send it back to them. And uh, that's all there is to it. Now you're in the database. Now you're in the pool of potential donors who uh, are, are folks that are healthy and would be willing if you know if the the genetic matchup the the genetic lottery strikes that you happen to be a genetic match for someone who has blood cancer and is also part of the DKMS system it'll match match us up or match you and that that person up and uh, DKMS will contact you about everything you need to do or or are 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 capable of doing in terms of giving a, a marrow donation that could potentially save a life and uh you know, the, the process is pretty simple. Um, I'm not going to say it's completely painless, but it's not a huge ordeal for, for you as the, the donor. Uh, you'll be back to running probably within uh, a few days, if not a week or a week or 10 days, something like that at most. Um, and in, in taking that little bit of a break, you're giving somebody the, the chance to live a, a healthy cancer-free life. So I think it's a pretty small price to pay. So if you're willing to do that, dkms.org is the website. And you can also text the word amazing. That's A-M-A-Z-I-N-G to the number 50555 to get more information, get all your questions answered right there on your cell phone. So uh, thank you to DKMS for the continued support and uh, in all seriousness, thank you guys for supporting DKMS, for getting yourself into the pool of potential donors. You never know uh, if you might be lucky enough, I'll say it, lucky enough to, to be a match for somebody who's in need, who, who needs a, a donation. And uh, you can you can give that to them, give them the, the chance to live the rest of their life whether it's a few years or a few decades or even longer than that, uh, cancer-free. Wow, what a what a cool thing to be able to do. Thank you to DKMS for what they're doing. So like I said, today it's the end of the month. It is listener Q&A time. And if you're new to the show, uh, new, to, new to these parts of the internets, uh, the, the process is pretty simple. 
uh, every month, somewhere in the middle of the month, I put a little post up in our private Facebook group, which you can get to just by pointing your browser at disruns.com slash Facebook. Or the next time you're on Facebook, just type into the search bar, the Disruns tribe, click to join the group. We will let you in. We have a pretty easy policy of, uh, you know, you're, you're welcome until you prove to be a douche and then we get rid of you. But uh, as long as you're not a douche, you're welcome to hang out and talk about running a little bit with uh, some folks who are uh, pretty uh, pretty much drinking the running Kool-Aid, just like myself. And, and we have a good time picking on each other a little bit, all in fun, supporting, loving, uh, answering questions, whatever we can do. But like I said, somewhere in the middle of the month, I put a post up that says, hey, what are your questions this month? And people in the group chime in with their questions. And boy, did they chime in this month. We got the last few months, there's been a lot of questions. And I feel like this one is every bit as long, if not longer, as, in terms of number of questions than what we've had recently. So, uh Buckle up, settle, settle in, because uh, I'm going to try to keep the answers somewhat short-ish. But uh, if you've been listening for a while, you know, you know what happens on these episodes. I get, I get going, I get rambling, and pretty soon we've got a, an hour and twenty, hour and thirty minute uh, Q and A episode. So we'll see what happens. We'll see how long it takes, um, and uh, hopefully the answers will at least be useful, at least a little bit. Um, but I suppose if they're not, you know, you're getting what you pay for, right? You get, you're asking for free advice. You're getting free advice. Hopefully the free advice is good. Uh, I think most of the time it is, but every once in a while, you know, who knows? Maybe I, maybe I swing and miss. But uh, without any further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the questions. The first question, this go-round, this month of October, the year 2018, comes from Miss Brooke, who asks, uh, on average, how much faster do you try to run your marathon compared to your long training runs? And uh, this is this is actually, I mean, it sounds like a pretty simple question, right? But for me, it's it's actually a bit more complicated. It's a little bit tricky, if I may be so bold, uh, because I don't do a lot of pace anything these days. Uh, with with my experiment on heart rate training and, and the uh, results that I've I've clearly been seeing, and I'm going to talk more about that as uh, the year gets a little closer to the end. But uh, you know, I, I mean, I, like when when I train now. My, my pace doesn't matter. It's all about heart rate. So I'm trying to stay within a certain heart rate zone or at least below a certain upper limit. And as long as I'm underneath that limit, I'm happy, you know? So that means if, if I, you know, for some of the longer runs, does that mean I have to slow down quite a bit to stay under the limit? Absolutely. Does that mean I might have to walk a few times? Not because I need to walk, but because my heart rate's creeping up too high and you know, the quickest way to bring it down is to walk a little bit. Do I have to walk? Absolutely. Does that screw up my, my average pace on Garmin? Absolutely. Do I care? No, no, I don't care at all because I'm all about this heart rate training, keeping my heart rate low, um, or at least, you know, below my, my aerobic threshold, which we'll talk about that a bit farther down with some of the other questions that are coming up. But, uh, you know, as long as I do that, I'm happy. And then on race day, I don't worry about my heart rate. I don't worry about my pace. I try to just listen to my body and push based on, uh, you know, how I'm feeling, you know, kind of channeling, uh, my inner Chuck Van Doozy, who is, uh, who's a, an 80 something year old that's still running marathons was on the show a while back and said that on race day, the, the goal is to run as fast as you can on that day, depending on the distance. So, you know, when I show up to the start of a marathon, I'm trying to listen to my body and try to figure out what is the fastest that I can go today, but not so fast that it's going to cause me to blow up and, and, and have a bad, you know, have a bad finish because I went out too fast, but also not too slow, not too conservative. So that I have a bunch of gas left in the tank when all is said and done. So instead of trying to, to keep my heart rate in a, in a range on race day or try to keep my pace somewhere in particular, uh, on race day, I just turn the, the watch, you know, the, the information, the data fields on my watch to basically just elapsed time, total time and total distance. I usually keep that up on there as well, but that's it. So I have no pace per mile, no average pace overall, no heart rate information, nothing. I just run based on how I'm feeling. And I've been surprised 
in the races I've run in the last couple of months to see that for the most part, my splits are pretty even, you know, it's plus or minus 10 or 15 seconds for the most part, but that's still for me, that's pretty darn even, especially without trying to monitor things and have been negative splits, which is the first three times I've ever done that or the last three marathons I've ever run, um, to where I'm finishing stronger, feeling good, actually getting quite a bit faster towards the end of the, the race, you know, the last 5k, the last four miles, something like that, really picking up the pace and, and finishing strong. Um, so, you know, to, to answer your question, Brooke, on average, how much faster do you try to run your marathon compared to your, your long training runs? I mean, I, I, I do, but I don't because I, like the faster, the pace thing isn't, isn't something that I worry about. So, you know, if, if, if you're not going to be as all in on heart rate training and, and buy into the philosophy as I am, then maybe the, the recommendation would be definitely you want a, a gap. You know, I would say probably at least a minute, maybe even s- bigger than that, a minute and a half to two minutes. You know, if you look at my, my paces for a lot of my runs, like I said, on some of those longer runs where I'm keeping my heart rate in the zone and that's required me to really slow down and, and mix in some walking as well, I'm usually in the the 1130-ish per mile pace. Uh, and then on, on the most recent run, seven, seven bridges marathon in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, on, on the 21st of October, just a, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I, my average pace on that day was, was nine nineteen for the, for the final marathon for the full marathon. So, I mean, I was, you know, two minutes faster on race day, uh, the, you know, the average kind of short to moderate size long run. I think my average pace usually ends up being somewhere in the 1030 to 1045 range. So still a solid minute to minute and a half faster on race day than I am in my training. So definitely you want to keep a gap in there. You want to keep your easy runs easy. And, you know, as I've, as I've said, and I will probably continue to say, because I'm a pre- pretty big believer, you know, I think that, that, that measuring that heart rate is the best way to go. But if you're going to go by paces, you definitely want to have a pretty good gap between what's easy and what, what your easy runs are and what your, you know, goal race pace would be, because you want to keep those easy runs easy. And that means, that means you're probably going to have to keep them a bit slower than you might think you, you want to, or than you think you should. But if you, uh, stick with it and, and train intelligently, the results are there. The results are there and they show up on race day when you, uh, you know, when you try to tap into it and, uh, and get after it. So hope that that helps Brooke. I know it's not the greatest answer, but you're, you're certainly always welcome to, to check out my, my, uh, Strava or my Garmin, all that stuff's public. Uh, you can check it out and kind of see, uh, you know, how slow I go on, on easy days. And then on race day, boom, like, you know, not that I'm blazing speed or anything like that, but you know, like I said, it's, it's a solid minute and a half to two minutes per mile faster for the marathon. And if I was going to go on a, on a, you know, uh, a half marathon or something like that, it'd be even faster. Um, because obviously I'd be pushing harder for a shorter distance. So I'd be going even, even faster than that. So, um, it's all relative, but definitely have, don't be afraid to have a pretty good size gap between your training pace and your race day goal pace for sure. Uh, next question comes from Karen says after running a marathon, how long should you wait to run again? I've heard a day for every mile, but no way am I going to do that. I've also heard to reverse the taper to wade back into the mileage. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Karen, I have heard that same thing too, about, you know, take a a day off for every mile. Maybe you've heard me talk about it because I've mentioned it here and there as far as one of those rules of thumb that I just don't, I don't understand it. It makes zero sense to me. Um, and, and I don't think that there's any, you know, there, there really is any, how long should you wait? 
because to me that's that's a bit of one size fits all advice and and you all know where I stand on one size fits all advice I think it can one size itself right on out the door because it's useless there is no one size fits all advice there's no one size fits all rule that we should follow because we are not one size fits all runners everybody one of us is our, is unique our training background our physiological background um, the races are different you know different courses different you know hilly is it uphill downhill flat uh, what the weather was like all of those things all of those factors are going to be uh, are going to determine how much time off we need, which is why in the book here, a little, little book plug, um, but in, in Be Ready on Race Day, I talk about how maybe the pain-free plus three is a better idea for when you should be ready to come back to run. And so uh, if you're not familiar with that, Karen or anybody else, basically what that means is wait after your race, wait until you're pain-free. That might be the next day. That might be a week. It might be 10 days. Who knows? It depends on how hard you pushed yourself, how well your training went. Like I said, on the factors of course topography, layout, uh, you know, what uh, was it mostly crushed gravel? Was it hard concrete? Was it trail? There, there's a whole host of things that are going to factor into how long you're going to be sore. But wait until you can go up and down steps without any pain. Wait until you can sit down on the couch and get off of that without any pain. Wait until you can sit down on the toilet without any pain. Um, because, you know, if, if you're not, uh, if you haven't, experienced that yet that's those are some of the, the for me at least those are like the three most common like when i know i'm feeling better is when i can come come down the stairs easily sit down stand up from from the the couch from the toilet from a low low seat anything like that where it's kind of a deep squat ish type of, of movement so wait until you're you're pain-free then wait three more days wait three more days why well there, there's no there's no real science here there's no real um you know verifiable thing but if there's one thing I know about us as runners, and this is me being guilty of this as well, you know, we want to get back to running as quickly as we can. I think even though a lot of us try to cut short, maybe the pain-free part of it and, and get back out there a little bit quicker, I think once we're all pain-free, it's like, all right, we're ready to go. But to your body, that might not be the case. In fact, a lot of times that's not the case, which is why very often I see this in my athletes. I see this from, from people in the, in, the, in the Facebook group. I see this on social media where it's like that first run or two back after a marathon. I'm like, God, it's a slog. The legs are heavy. It doesn't feel great. That means your body's probably not fully recovered yet. More than likely. Maybe not. Maybe there's other factors going on as well, but, but probably your body's not fully recovered. So that's where the, the plus three comes in. Wait till you're pain-free, then give it three more days. On that third day, go for an easy run. Okay. But what that does is it just gives us just a little bit more time, a little bit more time to sleep in a little bit more time to foam roll, a little bit more time to do some, some yoga or some cross training, something to get the body moving and, and get the blood pumping, but probably not going to, you know, stress us in the same way that running is going to your body just needs some time, needs some time to recover. And again, most of us don't give ourselves enough time. So Aaron on the side of giving yourself a little bit extra time, not a bad choice, not a bad choice. It's certainly not going to you know, erode all of your fitness. You're not going to not be able to run because you waited three more days to, to, to train. Um, you know, you're not going to forget how to run. You're not going to be gassed after the first half a mile or something like that. You're going to be fine. And if anything else, you might be in a better place because you're giving your body that extra little bit of, of rest. So pain-free plus three is my recommendation on how long you should wait. And that could be anything from four or five days to two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, depending on how your body is, is feeling coming out of the race. As for wading back in, definitely the reverse taper is great. Something that, that just kind of, you know, don't don't dive right back into like full normal training mode. Like, you know, a couple of easy runs. Keep things pretty easy, probably for at least a, a month or so as far as intensity goes. Again, that's kind of a general blanket statement. But for the most part, 
running easy is going to be, and that's not just for me coming from the heart rate standpoint, but just run easy because your body is still probably recovering a little bit, even after your pain-free plus three. So don't push workouts. Don't push speed stuff right away. Don't go too long. Ease back into it, certainly over the course of a week or two, but maybe even in, into a month where you're you're keeping the, the volume a little bit lower and then gradually ramping it up as you go. Keep the, the effort, the exertion level, the pace slower, easier, things like that. Um, and, and your body will know. L- listen to your body. When your body's ready to go again, go. But don't don't try to force it. Don't try to talk yourself into it. Don't try to look around at what other people that ran the race that you run are now doing as well. This needs to be what, what you need to do to try to you know mitigate your risk of injury, make sure you're fully recovered, and then get on to whatever the next thing is in your training plan. So pain-free plus three, yes. Reverse taper, yes. Be smart. Don't rush the process, Karen. Take, take your time. Enjoy the, the glow of the marathon uh, and enjoy the recovery process as much as you can enjoy not running for uh, several days. But uh, y- you'll get back there and, and you'll be ready to go whenever it is that you're actually ready to go. Uh, next question comes from Maria. How important is it to cool down or stretch after a long run? It is important, but it's, it's, uh, I hope it's not vital because it's not something that I'm very good at doing. Um, you know, I, I might walk for a half a block or something like that to, to quote unquote, cool down after a long run, but I don't do, you know, I'm not, I'm not one that's stretching in the parking lot. I'm not one that's, that's, uh, you know, walking for 10 minutes after I finish my long run. Um, there's good reasons to do that. The physiology is, is makes sense as far as helping to, to gradually bring the heart rate down, gradually bring the core temperature back down, keep the, the heart rate, keep the, keep the body moving a little bit. So blood doesn't pull in your legs, things like that. All, all are beneficial. Um, some people need to do that more than others though. Some people have a bit more susceptibility to maybe some, some dizziness, some lightheadedness if they just immediately stop running. It also has to do with intensity. So after a, a long run, I mean, a long run isn't like a maximal all out, you know, kill yourself repeats type of workout. After those type of workouts, I definitely try to, to take in, you know, a, a five, 10, 15 minute easy run to just kind of bring things back down, you know, and that's, that's when it's really more important than just after, you know, if you're out for a, a 12 mile or a 15 mile or something like that. Yeah. It would be great to stretch right then. And when stretching, when the muscles are warm, absolutely the best thing to do. Um, but this would be, it'd be very hypocritical of me to say that after every long run, you need to stop and stretch right then for 10 minutes because I don't. I don't. It's something it's an area that I could improve upon. I try to stretch a bit in the evenings when I'm sitting around watching TV, maybe do some foam rolling and some stretching at the same time. Again, not perfect on that. Um, it's important. Yes. Is it vital? I mean, no ish, but, uh, it's definitely better to try to stretch after a long run than to not. So if you can make it part of your routine, Maria, more power to you. Certainly better, better than I, than, than I am. So hopefully you're able to do that, but thank you for that question. Uh, next question comes from Robin says, what do you do with retired shoes? I have a few pairs starting to stink up. I mean, fill up my closet and I feel like giving them to Goodwill or slash St. Vinny's is just setting someone up for disaster with a worn out shoe. Thoughts? Um, I, I don't really, I don't really know, Robin, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I keep a couple pairs as kind of kick around the house shoes as far as, you know, working in the, in the, the yard, uh, things like that, where I don't mind if they get dirty or nasty or something like that, because they're just worn out shoes and, and, you know, but they still have a little bit of life left in them for doing that type of thing. And maybe that's where donating them to, to the goodwill might, you might not be setting somebody up for disaster because, you know, for the most part, I think, um, hope, at least hope that, that when people are shopping at goodwill, um, you know, they, they recognize that these shoes are used. So if they're a runner, it's probably not the best place to get running shoes because you know that they're probably shoes that, that have been worn and don't have a lot of running life left in them yet for somebody shopping at goodwill, that just needs a pair of shoes. 
they probably have plenty of life to wear them walking around in, to wear them as a daily, as a daily shoe, a kid to wear to, to school or, you know, to wear to work or to wear on the subway or, or whatever it is that you need a pair of shoes for. And, and when you're shopping at, at the Goodwill, the thrift store, things like that, they work for that. So, so I do tend to donate my shoes. Um, I've also heard of, of running, sh- running stores, running, sh- running shops that, uh, you know, have, have, uh, collected shoes and, and, given them through different programs, this, that, or the other. I don't know all the details, but I know that that's something that, that has been out there. So if there's a running shop near you, uh, a little local, you know, like a fleet feed, or, you know, we've got, um, uh, fit niche or, or whatever different type of, of running stores are, are in your area, you might ask them and they might know of either a, a good place to donate them, a, g- a good local place that would really use them. Um, or, you know, they may have something that, that they're doing as well, but I don't have a real good answer other than donate them and, and hope for the best. Um, which doesn't seem like it really answers the question as well as, uh, as what you were hoping for, but that's, that's what I do. Um, you know, and, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I do, I guess is, is where I'm going to leave that one. Um, hope that helps Robin, but if, if others have ideas or, uh, things that you know that you've done with your shoes that really, you know, lets them go on to, uh, to, to something more productive than just sitting around in your closet, uh, let us know. Let us know. Uh, Dizruns.com slash 642 is the link for the show notes. You can you can leave a comment there. You can also find Robin's question in the post on Facebook and reply to it right there like Dana has done. She talked about uh, sneakers for funds as, a, as something that uh, she's, she's heard about and linked the, uh, the, the page there. Uh, I didn't look into it, so I don't know exactly what, what that all entails, but maybe there are some options out there as well. Maybe a little Google. Maybe I should have Googled before I, I answered this question. I don't know. But uh, if you have suggestions, let us know. Uh, next question comes from Ava. What is your take on the idea that marathon runners need variety in their racing schedules to improve in the marathon? I'll admit that I've pretty much drank the 26.2 Kool-Aid and haven't raced any other distance in years. I've run races of other distances, but only as part of a marathon training cycle and as training runs rather than actual goal races. She says, I've been hearing more people talk about the benefit of cycles for halves and 10 Ks and five Ks and strengthening other systems and ultimately making you a stronger marathoner. Curious what your thoughts are and funny to, that, that uh, this happened because I think both Ava and Ellen were leaving their question at about the same time because the very next question um, is from Ellen who says, I've heard in another running podcast about the importance of changing up training cycles. For instance, not always training for a marathon every year, doing a 5K, 10K cycle or half marathon cycle to make a stronger runner and work different systems. What are your thoughts to be a better distance runner? Should someone take six months to a year off from marathon training to work on the anaerobic system? So... Ladies, great, great question. Um, but I pretty much disagree with the premise. Okay. And, and here's why, hear me out. Um, when it comes to training for really any distance, physiologically, the training pretty much is the same, pretty much is the same. It's pretty much not that different. How you would prepare for a 5k, 10k half marathon is not dramatically different than how you'd prepare for a marathon. Now, obviously there are some differences. You don't maybe need quite as much volume when you're training for the marathon as you do for the shorter distance. You don't need to get 16 and 18 and 20 plus mile long training runs in as part of a, of a 5k training cycle as you do for a, a marathon training cycle. So there are some differences there, but what the training looks like, it's not dramatically different. Like, it's not like you're going to like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to really, you know, next summer, I'm really going to focus on the 5k. And instead of doing, you know, three easy runs and a speed workout and a long run for my five training runs per week, you're not going to all of a sudden go, I'm going to do four track workouts and a tempo run. And that's it. Like if you do do that, (laughs) do do, (laughs) you see what I did there? But if, if you do that, 
guess what? You're going to be injured before you get to race day anyway. So who cares? So why would you do that to yourself? You're still going to do some easy runs. You're still going to do some speed work, some tempo work, something like that. You're probably still going to do a long run. Now, again, it may not be quite as long, but you're probably still going to do a long run. So, so the way you're, you're mixing up your training really doesn't change. At least it shouldn't from a physiological perspective. Maybe you'll do some different workouts instead of doing, you know, maybe three by two mile repeats or something like that. Maybe you're going to do something that's, that's a little bit shorter. You're going to do more 400 meter repeats and things like that. But guess what? Both of those, those repeat workouts are still good. They're both going to still help you no matter whether you're running 26.2 miles or whether you're running 3.1 miles. All right. They, they, they both still work. They're both still good. They both still stress your system, make you stronger, make you faster, help you improve your form, bone density, all of those things that speed workout does. They, they, they do, they do that whether you're training for a marathon or whether you're training for a 5k. So, um, so the premise that you need to do that to, to work different systems is, is pretty faulty for me. However, there is a caveat here where that maybe would make a lot of sense, where that maybe would be a really good idea is between your ears, is between your ears, is in your, is in your brain. You, you can definitely get yourself in a situation where you're just kind of burned out, maybe chasing that, that Boston qualifying goal. You're just, you're just burned out from, from having to, to schedule your weekend activities around what day you're going to do your long run each week and things like that. And so shifting that focus to something shorter something that's a bit more manageable, maybe that, that is a bit, you know, that is a bit faster that you're going to push a little bit harder on that can give you a different mental challenge that can spice things up in your mind, spice things up in your outlook. And then when you do come back to the marathon, if that's something that you want to do, now you've got a, a, a fresh perspective on 26.2 and on what that race is like and how it's different than the shorter stuff and things like that. So on that sense, it absolutely could make a difference, but from physiology, no, when it comes to training your anaerobic system, guess what? You're, you're not really doing that anyway. You know, like, you know, anaerobically and an, the only anaerobic races that, uh, that we run are 400 meters and shorter. And even then, like my 400 meters wouldn't be anaerobic because I'm not fast enough to make it anaerobic. Um, you know, it, it, anaer- anaerobic stops or at least ceases to be the major source of energy production after like a minute. So to, to think that, that training for a 5k is an anaerobic race and make yourself more strong anaerobically is, is misguided. It's, it's, it's just misguided. The science isn't there. The science in fact is, is very strongly in the other direction that, that anything 800 meters and, and longer, um, is, is an aerobic race period. Um, so, so, you know, working on the 5k, you're still working the aerobic systems, working on the marathon, you're still working the aerobic systems. So, um, you know, yes, there one is faster. What, yes, you know, you're, you're more likely to toe the line of anaerobic threshold and, and building up and lactic acid in your, in your system with the 5k than you are at the marathon. At least if you're running the marathon, well, you're not going to really toe that line, but there's still aerobic races. There's, there's still absolutely aerobic races. And from a physiology perspective, from a fitness perspective, focusing on one versus the other, not doing a whole lot of difference one way or the other. So, you know, if you're, if you're kind of sick of running the marathon, then train for something shorter. If, if you're not, then keep doing the marathon. Keep doing what you enjoy doing um, because the training is not that different. Maybe maybe run a harder race once in a while, like a, you know, something short, a 5K once in a while, something that, that you're really running harder once in a while and run it all out just for fun, just for that little break in the routine. But you don't need like a huge training cycle for it. And, and in fact, if you remember back to when uh, Paige Biglin was on the show, she said that her best 5K PRs when she was still doing 100-mile training weeks. So clearly... Clearly, there wasn't a whole big difference between her marathon training cycle and her 5K cycle, 
yet it was just that little bit of focus difference on race day that she was able to just fly in the 5k and you know in the same type of training she'd obviously be running her marathon much slower but physiology physiologically she's still seeing those same improvements so it doesn't really matter one way or the other it's all all between the ears i think in, in most of those situations so um i kind of disagree i strongly I, I firmly disagree with the idea that uh you need to take a break in order to train your body differently because you're really not training very differently from one to the other so hope all that makes sense not not meaning to get too fired up on you there um but really from a physiological perspective from how your body responds not a big difference one way or the other another question from ellen says strides what are your thoughts incorporate them weekly after easy runs do you think they make a difference um so i've pretty much never done strides i think maybe i've done them once i see no point i see no reason um and maybe that's just my ignorance. Maybe that's just because I don't know as much about strides. Uh, maybe it's because I don't come from a, a track background where, um, you know, that's a regular part of, of a weekly training routine leading up to the, to the track meets, things like that. I just don't do them. I, I don't. Um, so maybe I'm leaving something on the table. Uh, maybe I'm missing something. If I am, let me know y'all. If, if, if I'm a fool for ignoring strides, let me know. I just don't, I don't see any reason. Um, so, you know, so I don't do them. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, um, I don't think you need to do them. If you want to do them, go for it. I don't think they're hurting anything, Ellen, but, uh, you know, I, I don't see a big reason why they, sh- they have to be part of a routine. Um, and again, if I'm missing something, let me know y'all, y'all if, if, if y- y'all think that, that I'm, you know, my screws are loose because I don't do strides. I would love to hear why, not just that, that my screws are loose, but why, what's, what's the benefit of doing strides versus just running easy versus just doing a, a, a different hard run. Um, what's, what's the point, uh, of, of strides? I don't, I don't get it. doesn't make sense to me. So, um, sorry, Ellen, I don't have a good answer for you on that one. Next question comes from Michelle favorite Halloween costume. Um, so question for you, Michelle, you're talking about for myself or for others. So, uh, I don't know that I've ever really had a good Halloween costume. You know, I, I growing up, uh, in Northern Michigan, of course, anybody who, who lives in places where there very well could be snow on trick or treating knows that you need to have a couple different costumes each year. Anyway, you need to have your costume. You can wear to school, uh, your costume for, if it happens to be, you know, in the fifties and certainly you need to have a backup costume in case it ends up being, you know, 28 degrees and freezing rain when you're trying to trick or treat. So you gotta have, you gotta have a little variety in your costumes. Um, and as a kid, I mean, I, you know, I did the bum thing a few times. I did the, the scary monster mask thing with the cape over it a few times. I did a mime once. Um, but no, no real good I, that I would call at least real good, clever, uh, creative Halloween costumes. Um, looking at, at some other folks that I've seen, um, I had a friend, Sarah Cody in, in elementary school that, uh, got herself a bunch of, of empty cereal boxes and kind of, you know, put a couple strings together so that she could have like, kind of like a, like a, a, a like an A-frame sign, you know, front and back, uh, you know, put it over her head, uh, a bunch of cereal boxes with like plastic knives that were stuck through them. And she was a cereal killer. I thought that was really clever. Um, you know, cereal, C-E-C-E-R-E-A-L, cereal killer. Um, so yeah, that was, that was clever. I never thought of that. That was good. Um, I have a friend who, this year, her and her husband dressed up as the Wet Bandits, as Marvin Harry, and uh, their son, who's like four or five years old, uh, dressed up as Kevin McAllister. That was that was pretty good. Well played, Holly. That was that was a good one. Um, and then, of course, there's there's the uh, 
the 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 girls in Oklahoma, Carly Dobb and, and her daughters, and, and a couple of I think one of her friends' daughters as well, uh, dressed up like Shalane from uh, NYC last year. That was kind of taken taken over. Was got a spot on Runner's World and and uh, kind of blown up in some running circles lately. Um, that's pretty good. But as far as myself, I'm not creative enough to come up with good costume ideas, and I just don't care. I, I guess I've just I, I guess my my go to costume is curmudgeon old man um, who doesn't like to have fun on Halloween, uh, and I've pretty much been been doing that since I don't know. Since, since day one, probably. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I recognize good costumes and others, but for myself, I'd rather just be my grumpy, my grumpy, no fun, stick in the mud self than just about anything else. So, uh, not sure exactly which way you're going with that, Michelle, but that's, that's my answer in either direction, uh, as far as Halloween costumes are concerned. Next question coming from Trevor says, I've been working on my form. Thought I was doing okay till I saw some race picks and my form is terrible. Foot landing way out in front and reaching suggestions on improving this. Uh, Trevor, a, a few suggestions. One, don't look at race photos, still photos when it comes to judging your form because they never tell the story. They always look terrible. At least mine always look terrible as well. I don't think my form is that bad. Um, if you're going to try to judge your form, definitely do it on, on a video. Uh, get get video of yourself running and see how you look because one still frame out of you know whatever 500 frames a second or something like that um, does not tell the whole story. So so don't worry about just a, a still picture making things look ridiculous because it's not. I, I I would say it's not a very accurate portrayal. The other thing I would say is unless you're having real problems with with your form, unless you're having real injuries that you can pretty much directly relate to your form it may not be worth worrying too much about trying to get perfect form because then, then we start getting into that one-size-fits-all territory. What is the perfect form? Well, it, it depends. It depends on your body type, on your body shape, how long your legs are, how long your torso is, what, how much weight you're carrying, how strong your glutes are, um, how long you've been running, foot size, l- leg length. Like There's a whole host of things that are going to impact your form. And yes, you know there are, there are some generally accepted ideals of, of you know, what things you can do better to improve your form, but... I would worry you're going to see more improvement from just doing good training, consistent training, training slow, doing your hard runs hard on occasion, doing the little things. You're going to see more improvement from that. And those things, if you do all those things, you work on your flexibility, range of motion, strength, things like that, your form is probably going to improve anyway. So just kind of let your body do what it's doing unless it's really causing you problems. And I think that would be a better way to go forward as far as addressing your, your form than trying to force your body to do something that it's hard to get perspective on in the moment anyway, because you're running. So then you're relying on these photos that don't really show an accurate picture. And you're like, Oh God, my form is terrible. Like, uh, just relax, relax, let your body do what it does. Um, and, and focus on what you can control, focus on training, training intelligently, little things. And a lot of your form issues will probably solve themselves. And then once you get to that point, then maybe it's worth making some effort for some of those little tweaks. But if you're newer to the sport, uh, don't worry about your form right away. Uh, is my, is my, two cents on the topic at least next question comes from another michelle says tempo runs what exactly is a tempo run and what pace do you run these at and for how long so the idea of a tempo run typically although i've seen some different i don't know some different definitions over time but typically the way at least i see tempo runs is that they're they're kind of something where you're kind of pushing pushing the limits kind of pushing your your i've also seen them called threshold runs you kind of pushing your lactic threshold a little bit like how hard can you go and maintain it for a certain duration and the goal is that as you as you train at that level on a somewhat regular basis so that's definitely counts as a hard workout so you're not going to train there daily but 
once a week, once every couple of weeks, something like that. Um, the idea is that your, your body becomes more capable of handling, processing, and using the lactic acid so it doesn't build up in your muscles, which means that you're not slowing down, you're not getting a muscle failure. Because remember, lactic acid does not cause muscle soreness, it causes muscle failure. We talked about that recently. So the tempo runs are to help you become more efficient at processing lactic acid while you're still running. That's the idea. So the way you do that is you try to, to kind of butt right up to that line of what's, what's too hard. What, where, what is that point where lactic acid is building up faster than you can break it down? And the, the, the rule of thumb for whatever rules of thumb tend to be worth is that you take your, like your 5k time and, and you know, what's your 5k pace per mile and add, you know, somewhere between five and 15 seconds to it. And that's kind of your tempo pace range. So if your 5k time, if your, if your average pace was, was nine minutes flat for the, for your 5k, you know, you'd want to keep your tempo run somewhere in the 905, 910, 915 range to where you're almost pushing at that, that near maximal kind of 5k level, but not quite. So you're getting right up to that line, right up to that lactic threshold, but you're not quite crossing it. And then it's the, the idea is then expand, extend it out. So extend it to four miles, four and a half, five miles, something like that. So you're going a bit longer, not quite as intense, but you're, you're really forcing your body to be able to, to break down and deal with lactic acid a little bit better. And then hopefully, you know, as, as you improve, you're getting faster. So now you now your, your tempo pace is now 845 and now it's 840 and now it's 830 and you're getting faster without the lactic acid building up and causing you to have to stop. How often do you do them? How long? I mean, it depends. I've, I've sometimes where with, with different athletes, I try to keep them at three miles or less. Sometimes we do it once a month. Sometimes we do it once every two months. Sometimes we do it every week. There's a lot of variables that play there. A lot of it, again, comes down to what your training background is, how fit you are, what your goals are, what you're working towards. You know, if you're doing longer races, you could, you could make the argument that you need to do them for longer amounts of time. So maybe five miles, six miles, seven miles. But then I think that maybe you need to, to back off your tempo pace a little bit because you're you know, if, if we're going at just a hair under what you can maintain for 5k, then asking you to do that for 10k, like you're not gonna be able to maintain that pace. You were setting you up for failure. So then you need to, to slow it down a little bit. So it's kind of a sliding scale too, based on the duration. But I think if, if you're new to, to tempo running, um, aim for, you know, 10 to, to 15 to 20 seconds, slower than your 5k pace and aim for three to three to four miles, eventually maybe working yourself up to five miles max. Um, and you'll, you'll get some benefit from it, but remember those count as hard runs. So you're not going to do those all the time. It's going to be an occasional thing that you're going to work towards, work on, and will improve over time. And you'll have to readjust your paces as you go. Um, so got several more questions, but just real quick before I forget, I want to take a second and once again, remind you that DKMS is a partner for this episode, is the sponsor for today's episode. You guys have been doing a great job of signing up and supporting DKMS. And uh, if you haven't done that yet, those of you that have, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. Um, you know, again, I mean, it helps me because it helps keep the, the sponsors happy and, and keeps them advertising on the show. But much more importantly than that, especially when it comes to DKMS, is it's, it's helping people who are battling blood cancer to have more of an opportunity to find that perfect match to get themselves a marrow donation and get themselves onto the, the list of people who have, have successfully beaten blood cancer with the help of DKMS. Uh, you know, the last, the last numbers I saw, there's, there's been some 70,000 successful donations that have been happening uh, in the last 20 plus years due to the DKMS model, due to having this, this large pool, over 8 million people in the pool of potential donors. And when people come in that have blood cancer or various other blood diseases, they, they, they test them, get their, their genetic code makeup, run it through the database and see if they can't find somebody who is a match. And, uh, like I said, over 70,000 so far that, uh, have been able to, to successfully come through the other side, beaten blood, beaten cancer 
because of DKMS. So if you're willing to get yourself in the pool, dkms.org is the website. Get yourself that free swab kit and and join me in the pool of potential donors. Uh, and also DKMS, or I'm sorry, text the word amazing. That's A-M-A-Z-I-N-G to 50555 for more information. Get your questions answered. And I believe you can even request your kit through that exchange as well. But uh, thanks to DKMS, dkms.org, helping to fight the fight against blood cancer and various other blood disorders. Thank you for uh, doing the work you're doing. It's it's uh, something that I'm honored to, ha- to have a relationship with y'all and uh, able to help help fight the fight in whatever way that I can. So next question in this Q&A episode, uh, already up pushing 40 minutes and uh, goodness gracious, we still got several more questions to go. So this is this is going to be a long one, but uh, hopefully, hopefully the information coming out is good. Next question coming from Chris, how to adjust your training when working 70 hours a week? Do you stop with the long miles and just focus on your target or what? I honestly think with my schedule, anything over a 15K is out of the question for me for a while. Uh, yeah, Chris, I think you pretty much answered your own question there. If you don't have time to train, if you got, if you're working 70 hours a week, the amount of stress and, and, and pressure and fatigue that's going to build up, and then you're going to try to train for a marathon as well. No, 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 no. There's, there's, there's not enough hours to do all that. There's, there's not, you know, then if you got family and, and other obligations, like, no, 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 no. You're at that point in life where things are a bit crazy with work right now. And that means something's got to give and it very well could be running. So yeah, I mean, if, if you're not going to race anything longer than 10 K 15 K, that's great. Use running right now as, as a stress relief. Use running as something to blow off a little bit of steam, to just get a little bit of fitness, but not worrying about pace and distance and all those types of things. Just get out for a few miles when you have the opportunity and nothing else. And then when, when work dies back a little bit or when other things give in your life and you're able to, to maybe focus on running a little bit more, great. Running is not going anywhere. So if you're at, the, at a point in life right now where you don't have time to train super consistently or at least to train for longer distances, then don't, don't. And I know it's easier for me to say, um, but I mean, I think you, you've, you've come to the realization that you can't do anything more than 15 K right now. That's fine. That's fine. Enjoy it. Enjoy those, those shorter races. Maybe get on the trails for some 15 Ks or something like that. Find ways to make it fun, but find ways to make it still fit your life and not worry about it. Because the last thing you need to do is worry about your running on top of 70 hours a week on top of everything else. And now, now the situation is just going in the wrong direction. So keep it fun. And, and when life allows you to get a little bit more running in, then get a little bit more running in until then do the best you can and don't worry about anything else. Next question from charity says, uh, should one scale back their training in the off race season to let their body adapt for when the training load gets heavier? Once race season starts again, I'm toying with the idea of chatting with my coach about this. Um, yes and no. Okay. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of reading between the lines, I think with your question there, charity. So I'm coming at this from two different ways, but yes, I mean, when you're not in race season anymore, when, when you're not building towards a goal race, it, it absolutely makes sense to back things off a little bit, to give your body that little bit of a break. We can't stay in peak training mode forever. Our bodies would break down. So we need to have those, those buildups and those, those let offs and things like that. So absolutely scale back when you don't have any races coming up. Um, but here's where I kind of come at it from a different angle. Maybe you're not running as much, but you know, now you've got these extra couple, three, four hours a week that you're not quote unquote doing anything with. Can you do something productive with those time? Now, if you have, you know, if you have more things you need to do for work or for family or whatever, then then take care of those things and just let your training, you know, not take a back seat, but, but scale it back a little bit, rebuild that base, keep, keep the base of fitness strong. And then when you're ready to build back up for the next race season, you can, you can do that. No big deal. But if you're just going to use that, that extra time each week to dick around on Facebook or Instagram or watching Netflix or whatever, you know, television shows that, that you're not even really care that much about, but Hey, I got, I've got half an hour. I might as well catch up on the housewives or something like that. 
maybe a better choice would be to use that that time for more productive means. So maybe not training specifically, not not more running. Dialing back the running is still okay, but maybe that's a good time to mix in more cross training, to mix in some strength training, some yoga, some foam rolling, some some of those things you can even do while you're watching the, the trashy TV, um, or maybe you watch non-trashy TV, but whatever it is, you can still do those, type th- those same things. Maybe you go go to the, you know, join the gym and get in the pool. Do, do some other cross training things so that, you know, yes, you've scaled back on the, the repetitive motion of running, but you're still keeping that, that real strong, solid base of fitness so that when you get back to, to running for the next race season, not only is your fitness still strong, but like you've shored up some weak links. You've added some more muscle strength. You've st- strengthened your, your core and the stability of your core. You've improved your flexibility. So you know your stride is a little bit longer. Um, you know, you've done some of those things that are going to really improve you uh, for the next race season in the off season. So that would be my, my recommendation. Dial back the running. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. But if you can use that time to shore up some weak links, that's a good productive use of that time that you're saving by not training as much. And maybe that means sleeping a little bit more, which is still productive. So maybe maybe some of that too, but, but you know, try to, unless you have other real demands on your time, if you're just filling that, that extra space with random mishmash of activities, being a little bit intentional with how you spend that extra time that you're saving by not training quite as much can really move you, continue to move you ahead so that you're starting even better off in the next race season, moving you closer to your goals. If all that hopefully makes sense. Next question from Scott. I want to start preparing for my first marathon. I've uh, run pretty hard all summer and I think it burned me out is upping the frequency of running and keeping the mileage low, a good way to build up to my body's quote unquote toughness. I want to get to that next stage, but I feel like when I try to do more than three runs a week with a long run, things start to break down. I know for marathon training, I should probably try to get to five runs a week, but I think that might kill me right now. Um, my first question there, Scott, hate to hate to sound like I'm going to be combative, but I think I might be going to be combative. Who says you need to get to five runs a week? Like, they're, they're, where, they're, where is it written that if, if thou wants to run a, a marathon, thou shalt have to run five times a week? I, I don't think that that's necessary. Now, yes, the more you're going to be able to run, the more volume you get, the, the closer you'll get to your maximum potential as a marathon. But you're talking about your first marathon, training for your first marathon, making it fit your life and get to the finish line happy. I don't think you need to kill yourself trying to get more runs in per week to get to that point. Can you do it with three runs per week? Yeah. Is it going to be pretty? Maybe not as pretty as if you, if you were able to do more, but again, don't, don't get it in your head that because Hal Higdon's plan says you have to do it this many times a week that you have to do it this many times a week. That is ridiculous. And I think, I think it's been not too long ago that we had some, some ridiculousness from Hal Higdon on the show. So, um, you know, you know, kind of, that's kind of how I think about Hal Higdon these days, but you know, if you want to build up to five days a week, that's, that's great. You don't need to. But definitely, if you're going to start adding, whether you're adding an extra day, whether you're just adding some more miles to those runs so that you're still only running three days a week, but you're instead of going, you know, a, a three miler, a four miler and an eight miler for your long run, now you're doing, you know, five miles and five miles and 12 miles, um, wh- you know, whatever it is, as you, as you build up, I think you, you follow my logic here, definitely want to keep things easy. You know, when you're, when you're adding more to your plate from a volume perspective, that is not the right time to also add more from an intensity perspective. Your body can't, your body can handle both for a, a short duration of time. But if you already felt like it was burning you out, you already felt like your body can't handle it when you're, when you're up in the, 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 the volume and keeping the intensity the same, then, then that's your body's kind of way of telling you like, Hey, whoa, dummy, like don't do any more or we're going to break down. So that's where you definitely want to be smart. You want to back off and keep your pace really easy. Maybe even slowing down more than you're already doing on your easy runs. 
um, just to give your body that, that time to get used to the, the, the extra time on your feet. And if you're going to add a fourth day, don't just try to add it in at the same level of what you're doing with the other ones. Subtract a little bit. So maybe you, you maybe you're at four miles, four miles, and eight miles for your long runs. Well, now and you want to add a fourth day to, to your week. Well, now go go three miles, three miles, and three miles. All you're doing there is adding one mile of easy running during the week, and maybe even bump your your long run from eight miles to seven. So now you're not adding any more mileage. You're not adding any more volume, but you're adding that extra day. Give your body a couple weeks to kind of adapt to that, and then you can start bumping things back up a little bit more volume wise to where now you you are building some extra mileage in there. But you know, give your body a, a break. Progress slowly. No no need to try to force things. No need to try to, to ramp things up too quickly. Just be smart. Work in the right direction over time, over several weeks, and that's where you see the progress, and that's where your body is able to re- re- adapt and respond to the increased demands, and that's where you're going to then be able to mix in speed workouts and longer long runs and all that kind of stuff that's going to help you be more ready for your first marathon. But it, it, it starts without kind of a lot of flashiness. It starts by just adding a mile here or subtracting a mile there and replacing it somewhere else to get your body accustomed to those increased demands. And that's where you can then start to really do some of the more fun building. Once your body gets used to it, once your body's not uh, breaking down and once you're not trying to feel like you're killing yourself uh, running three times a week or four times a week or whatever the case might be. So hope all that makes sense, Scott. There's no one right way or wrong way to do it. There's the, the way that works best for you. And there's a lot of options in that more than likely that you can play with different variables to make it fit for you, make you feel good, make you enjoy the process of training towards your first marathon. So, uh, lots of options out there. Uh, no right or wrong answer for sure. Next question comes from Tracy. She asked this last marathon training cycle almost broke me. How do you recover and avoid burnout after several rough training cycles? As a follow-up, thinking of training for speed rather than endurance for a season, i.e. 5k, 10k max distance thoughts. So kind of pretty similar to the question that, uh, Ellen and gosh, why can't I remember Ellen and Ava? There we go. I didn't have to, I didn't have to scroll up. It came to me the, the same question that, that Ella and Ellen and Ava had, uh, a few, a few questions ago. Um, and, and pretty much the same answer. You know, I, like I said, if you're Tracy, if, if you're dealing with, with burnout and kind of the mental fatigue after some rough training cycles, then changing the race distance physiologically isn't going to necessarily do much for you, but it might be just the pill you need to clear some of that, get some of that bad taste out of your mouth, to, to clear some of that mental hurdles, the mental fatigue, the mental burnout of consistently training for a marathon, because let's not kid ourselves. The marathon, the race itself isn't that bad. It's the training that's, that really gets to you. It's those, those 20 mile training runs, those three hour training runs out by yourself, the three and a half, the four hour training runs out by yourself. that are just kind of ugh. race day's fun, at least for me. Um, so, it, you know, wherever you're struggling with that, if you can clear, clear the decks for, uh, for a little bit, maybe for a year, maybe for six months, maybe for just a, 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 you know, maybe for two years, I don't know, maybe indefinitely, who knows, but try something different. So maybe it's a shorter, maybe it's longer, maybe it's running ultras, maybe it's getting on the trails. Uh, who knows what it is, but mix things up a little bit. Uh, especially if you're feeling burned out, if, especially if you're feeling the end of that mental fatigue, that mental build up cycle after cycle. Um, yeah, absolutely. Mix, mix it up a little bit. Um, because that's going to clear you up mentally. You know, and as long as you're still training, as long as you're still running, you're not going to lose any, you're not going to lose much fitness. Now, if you're not doing long training runs, you might lose some of that, in, that longer endurance before the next marathon training cycle. But if you, if you come back to the next marathon training cycle with your, with your mind clear and excited to run a marathon again, you'll get that fitness back. No big deal. You'll have plenty of time to build up to it before your race. Um, so get, get your mind right. And if that means that you don't run anything long for a while, then don't run anything long for a while. 
and that's going to be okay. That's going to be okay. So a uh, lot of people on this, on this, on this bandwagon now about uh, the, or at least questions about the idea of, of breaking things up and there's benefit to it, but physio- physiologically, meh, not much, not much. A lot of those benefits come, come in the mind and mixing up the challenges mentally. And that, that makes a big difference. Don't, don't think for a second that it doesn't. So hopefully that helps Tracy. Hopefully you can avoid that burnout, have some fun again. And then if slash when you want to get back to, to racing, you know, you can do that. You can do that. The racing the marathon, that is. You can do that. And if you need a little help, I know a guy. I know a guy. Uh, but uh, but anyway, next question coming from Alan. How how about the best ways to train young runners ages like 6 to 14? Just keep it fun. Just keep it fun. Keep it, e- you know, e- running easy, running fast, running hard. Just make it fun. Kids, are, kids, you know, don't put a lot of pressure on results. Don't put a lot of pressure on things. Just keep it fun. And as they get, get a little bit older, maybe they get to the, you know, there's a big difference between six-year-olds and 14-year-olds too. Um, but you know, as they get closer to that, that 14 age, the middle school to high school, then maybe they're going to, maybe, you know, it gets a little bit more serious at that point, but when they're still young, just keep it fun. You know, add th- things like tag, things like, like just make a game out of it, ma- making it a game, gamifying the, the running, gamifying it, gamifying the training. That's what matters. You know, Addison loves to run because she loves to run ahead of us when we're walking the dogs. She goes down to the house. That's, I don't know, 10 houses down or something like that. That has a, an owl statue out in the front yard. So her, her game is to go run down to the owl statue and then run back and, and hold the dog leashes. Perfect. Perfect. We're not forcing anything on her. We're not trying to, to have her run at a certain heart rate zone or things like that. She just goes out and she runs for, for fun. And she's smiling and laughing the whole way. And we've finally gotten to the point where the neighbors don't come freaking out of the house. Like, oh my God, this child's running away. Like, no, she's just running down to the owl and she'll be back. It's okay. It's okay. So, so yeah, make it fun. That's, that's definitely the biggest thing for, for really for anybody, but especially, especially for younger kids. Uh, another question from Alan, what is the best way to pick a race to run? I mean, fun, fun factor kind of plays into that as well. But you know, I think that, that there is not necessarily a best way. There is kind of what, what, would you most like to do? So, you know, look at, look at some different races, look at big races versus small races. Do you like races with 10,000 other people running? Or do you like races with just several hundred people? Do you like a big city? Do you like running out in the country? Do you like to travel? Do you like things close to home? Kind of figure out what, what your preferences are. And then you can head over to like, uh, findmymarathon.com or there's half a dozen different marathon kind of repositories where, where, you know, races can, can be part of the, the group and you can search for dates. You can search for locations. You can search for sizes of fields. You can search for pretty much whatever the variables are that you enjoy. And it'll pop up a bunch of different races that meet the criteria that you, that you enjoy weather wise and locations and, uh, you know, amenities and things like that. And so I think that's probably the best way is to kind of narrow it down a little bit as far as what you actually want. Because if you know, you don't like big city marathons, then why would you try to force yourself to run a big city marathon? Now, maybe it's worth it once in a while just to experience it. But, you know, I mean, if, if, if you don't like running in the city, then pick a country race. You know, pick a race that that's doesn't have a whole lot of people. It's out in the middle of, of nowhere and live it up. Enjoy the scenery. Enjoy the, the, the animals and the wildlife and the flowers and the things like that. Versus if you like to see architecture and buildings and people, then pick a, a, an urban race where there's going to be more spectators. There's going to be more things to look at from a, a man-made, you know, architectural buildings, things like that. Parks, statues, monuments. Um, you know, just, just find what, what you enjoy to do. And like I said, find my marathon. There's a several other marathon guide, I think is one. There's a bunch of different websites. That that's what they're they're That's what they do is help to, to pick races and, and, and put races in front of you. That might be something that you're interested in. And then you'll have a choice of yourself, choice of several dozen races to choose from. So then pick the one that, that fits best for your criteria and uh, you're good to go. You're good to go. So thanks for those questions, Alan. Hope, hope those both made sense. Uh, next one comes from Tom. 
It says, do you invite your non-runner family and friends to races? The support is great, but the waiting can be boring, quote unquote, or, or parenthesis from what I am told. Uh, yeah, Tom, I, I agree that I think the, the, the waiting around would be pretty boring. Uh, you know, and um, personally, I really don't invite much. Um, in fact, I typically, I don't want to say I disinvite, but I'm, I'm always trying to give, like, especially Rebecca, give her an out. Like, babe, you don't need to come to this race. It's, it's whatever. It's no, it's no big deal. You don't have to come. You don't have to come if you don't want to. She says, yeah, but I'm going to come. So, so she comes. So I, you know, I don't, I don't try to make her, I, I want to make sure that she knows that I don't expect that she comes to every race, that I don't expect that she stands out there for, you know, hours to see me run by for 10 seconds or something like that. Um, it's not expected. Is it nice? Yeah, absolutely. It's nice. It's nice to see, um, obviously a, a family or a friend, a loved one for yourself, but it's also nice to just, when there's other spectators out there, hopefully they're, they're cheering for everybody, not just waiting for their one runner. Um, but, uh, I don't really do much inviting. And, and in fact, I kind of got in trouble last year for not inviting my parents or not letting them know uh, when they were down in Florida, that there was a race I was running that was local that they could have easily come to watch and spectate at because I didn't figure they would want to. So I didn't even offer it out there. So maybe the, the best bet is to mention it, make sure that the fa- friends and family that are in the area are aware if they want to come, great. Maybe give them that, give them that out though. Give them the, I don't expect you to come. Just let you know if you want to come and, and watch great. If not, no big deal at all. Totally understand it. Um, and that way they can, they can make that choice for themselves. But, um, I kind of think that's, that's where I kind of am, am coming down on that, that topic these days of letting people know if they want to come great. If not totally understand, totally understand, uh, that it's not expected that they come and support or watch or witness for uh, 20 seconds when then I run by and then, um, you know, they don't see me again for another hour or two till the race is over. Yeah. That's, that's not a whole lot of fun. I don't think. But unless you're a real run junkie, but you're talking about non-runners here. So, you know, it, it is what it is. If they want to come out, though, that's great. Always, you know, spectators, the more, the merrier for sure. Uh, next question coming from Dan. I'm loosely considering doing a full next fall. Several years ago, I did my first full, and at mile 20, it was crash and burn city. My crash and burn was probably for multiple reasons, but considering that I have a year to plan for this potential marathon, um, I was wondering what training alternative I have that would be better prepared, that would help better prepare me, uh, to avoid the crash and burn possibility. For example, I was wondering if I started my training earlier with the intention of building a better base, including a plan of completing several of the maximum long runs with allowing for ample time to recover and repeat. Yes, Dan, I think that's a great idea. And I feel like, I feel like I wrote a book just about this, or at least a lot about this. And, uh, um, yeah, I, and I, I know you, that you have the book, um, but but yeah, I mean that's that's definitely something that I think that um, you know if you've got a full year to prepare for the race, there's no reason to wait until 16 weeks out to start training for it. Now, obviously, you don't need to be in full race training mode when you still have a year to go, but yeah, definitely start building that base. Definitely start, <coughs> excuse me, definitely start s- stretching out some of those long runs. Um, and I definitely believe that the more times you put yourself through that kind of no man's land of mile 20 to mile 26.2, the easier it gets. Now it never gets easy, but your, your body is more capable of knowing what to, what to expect, how to handle it, how to do it. Um, I mean, I think that's why I was able to PR in Chattanooga was that I ran 26.2 miles in, in Idaho on September 1st, and then did some good training before Kansas and ran, ran Prairie Fire Marathon 26.2 miles or actually 26.5. Cause there's tough to run the tangents in that race. Um, the week before. And so by the time I got to, to, to Tennessee. Yes, I had run a lot more leading into it than I ever really have before, but that was a good thing. I, I knew what to expect at mile 22, mile 23, mile 24. I was confident that I wasn't going to crash and burn. So if you can, if you can structure your training in a way that, you know, maybe once a month for the, you know, the, the four, four months leading up to the race or something like that, you can be, 
near 20 miles and then back it off and run some 15s and some 16s, maybe a couple of fast finishes, things like that. Um, great. And then, you know, touch it up to 21 or 22 miles and then back it off and then touch it up to 21 or 22 miles again. You do that a few times and you're going to be confident that you can finish it, uh, finish the marathon strong. And I think that that's, that that's, that confidence piece is something that, uh, you know, just, just comes with experience and, and you may not be able to, to, you know, simulate race day experience without doing a race, but you can definitely experience mile 20, mile 21, mile 22 without a huge extra risk, without a huge setback in, in training. If you're doing it intelligently, if you're keeping those runs easy, you know, don't push the pace, keep things nice and easy. Then the next week is kind of a recovery week. You're going to pull back a little bit, allow those legs to recover, get a, get a couple runs in, uh, but nothing crazy. Then, you know, normal training for a couple weeks, then, then build up to it again and see what that, what that does for you. So I think that, I think that is a, a great plan and uh, definitely um, not, not necessarily foolproof and that it will hundred percent guarantee that you won't crash and burn, but I think it'll do a lot for you to make sure that those last few miles, that last 10 K um, is as smooth sailing as it can possibly be at the end of a marathon. So hopefully, hopefully uh, that, that helps you there, Dan. Uh, and thank you for the question. And uh, obviously if, if you, if you have the book, you know, I, I'm happy to kind of help you along the way as, as it goes. Uh, so, so, you know, let me know other questions along the way. Uh, another question from Brooke says, I'm considering doing the Blue Ridge marathon. How did you train coming from somewhere flat going to run a big run in the big hills and mountains? I live near Florida. So I think my city is almost as flat as yours. Uh, yeah, Brooke, uh, you know, when it comes to, to training for a race, that's literally in the mountains, uh, like the Blue Ridge marathon is, um, and you're training for it in central Florida, or I think you're in South Georgia, if memory serves. So, you know, still pretty flat part of the, the world. Um, there really is no way to be fully prepared. I mean, there's just, there's just not, you can still be well-trained and you still need to be well-trained of course. And maybe it's even more important when you know that the, the topography is not going to do you any favors, but you know, you're, you're not going to be the, the, the strongest on the Hills when you never run on the, on the big Hills. You know, um, that said, if you're a little bit creative, you can find some ways to get a little bit of hill training in usually, uh, you know, maybe it's highway overpasses, which is something that, that, uh, I relied on when I was getting ready for, for Blue Ridge. Maybe it's parking garages and you're running up and down the, the, the ramps in a parking garage. If there's a parking garage near you, maybe it's just, uh, you know, finding a few little hills here and there, little driveway hills or something like that, that aren't much, but there's something, um, but you just, you just do the best you can. You try to be creative. What, what man-made hills can you find if there's not real hills that you can go, go climb? Uh, maybe, maybe it's getting in the car and, and driving a little ways to get to some, some hillier parts of, of your area. Not every week, but a couple of times at least to, to get experience with it. Maybe when you're, you're visiting family and friends, if you, if you have to, if you don't have family and friends right nearby, maybe they live in a more hilly area. So maybe you, you make a point to go visit visit some folks a few more times with the expectation that you're also going to be running a fair bit while you're there. So you can experience the ups and the downs of, of running a race like Blue Ridge. Um, and then the other thing I think that, that you should do, um, if you decide to run the race, and I would definitely encourage it. It's a great race. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, looking forward to, to running there again at some point. I don't know when that point will be. Um, but wouldn't mind having the opportunity to go back to, to Roanoke and run it again, but, uh, definitely adjust your expectations. It's not going to be a PR race. I mean, I don't think it's a PR race for anybody unless maybe if you live, right there and you can run those hills and mountains all the time, then maybe, but if you're running those hills and mountains all the time, all you have to do is run one course. That's like slightly flatter and you're going to PR there. So, you know, it's not really a PR course. Um, it's not a course where you need to worry about the time. Just enjoy it as far as finishing time. Just worry about having fun, enjoying yourself, get a, get a mimosa from the lady at mile seven, 
if she's still handing them out because she was there when I was there, and I've heard that she's been there in other years as well. So get a, get a get a mimosa from the lady, you know, and enjoy the the uh, the neighborhood party that they have at the top of one of the mountains at about mile sixteen seventeen. You know, get a beer or a glass of champagne or or a hot dog or whatever they've got that they're giving out. Enjoy it, enjoy it. Um, just you know, take your time, have fun, and and make that the priority for that race. Um, and and the priority of like. I'm going to finish this marathon. That's pretty freaking hard, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to feel like a badass doing it. So, you know, those would be kind of the ways that I think you can kind of change your perspective a little bit. Definitely make sure you're well-trained, make sure you're getting the miles in. Even if it's flat, it's still, you still need that, that base of fitness, do some strength training, get your, get your glutes fired up, get your quads fired up. Um, but you know, you can do it. You can do it. Uh, it's just not going to be probably your fastest race, but it could be, it could still, you could still PR for fun that day for sure. So enjoy it. If you decide to do it, certainly looking forward to, uh, to follow along. I know, I know the shorts are going to be there. Um, and maybe a few others as well, but I think Ben Wachter says he's going to be there. So that's awesome. Um, who knows? Maybe I'm not, I'm not making any promises. I'm not trying to float any rumors here, but maybe, maybe I'll make an appearance at some point at one of these Blue Ridge marathons. I don't know. I'm, I'm in maybe into a little bit of discussions, but they don't look like they're going anywhere right now. So we will, we will see to be determined as per usual. Uh, next question. Speaking of the shorts comes from Miss Melody says, uh, I was watching the Amsterdam marathon and I watched, uh, Kinesia Bekele probably screwed that name up, but whatever, uh, DNF with the finish line in sight. Announcers were saying that he's had a number of DNFs. One even said that there may be a time when runners age out of competition. Do you think that is true? Have you ever DNF'd? How do you cope with it? What do you do when it happens? So all the questions there in one, um, do I think runners age out? Well, you know, yes, yes, they absolutely do from like high level elite competition. You know, they may still continue to run. They may still continue to run pretty darn fast, but at some point, you know, you get to a point, I mean, Meb, Meb aged out of competing internationally, competing in the elite field, um, and had to, you know, kind of turn over the reins to some of the younger guys and let them, let them battle it out at the front of the races. doesn't mean he doesn't still run, but he's just, you know, when you, when you're running for a livelihood, eventually father time catches up to all of us, um, which is better than the alternative, of course. So, um, so yeah, runners definitely age out when it comes to elite DNFing. Um, I don't know that they often do it when the finish line is in sight, but if they know they're not going to have their best day that day, if they know they're not going to be competing for a place on the podium and a paycheck, um, it's not uncommon at all from to, to DNF because it saves themselves for the next race. Maybe they jump in another race a month from now that they wouldn't normally have raced, but because they recognize that they weren't going to do well in, in, in this race and they, they, they DNF'd it at mile 12, there's still a lot of life left in those legs. So they can come back and race again. Um, so, so that's, it's not uncommon in the elite field at all. If they know they're not going to win, if they know they're not going to be, uh, in the running, just shut it down, shut it down and live to, to run another day. Um, when it comes to me, have I ever DNF? No, no, I never have. Um, a couple times, maybe it would have been the right choice, but being stubborn, being hard headed, being, uh, you know, the, the one time that I'm mentally strong is on race day. You know, I, I, there's plenty of times I've quit on myself and DNF'd from a workout, but never on a race. You know, I've, I've stu- struggled through, like I said, probably a couple times when maybe I should have backed out. Um, but I think when it comes to coping, it really just comes down to, um, you know, getting, getting a little bit of space, giving yourself a few days and then really kind of thinking about why did you, did you, did you DNF? Did you quit because you just didn't want to do it? That's, that's a little bit, uh, eh, that might be a little bit borderline kind of lame sauce. But if, if, you know, if you were really hurting, if you're trying to save yourself from making a little issue much worse, if you're maybe, you know, battling some heat issues or some dehydration because you had GI issues or whatever the case might be, if there was a, a legitimately a legitimate medical reason why you, why you decided, you know what, this doesn't, it's not a good choice for me to continue in this race, then, you know, it still doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it 
you know, it doesn't make it fun that you do an F DNF, but it's absolutely the right choice in that situation. So give yourself a little bit of space, look back on it. And if you can have a, a couple of good reasons, then, you know, I think that, that helps. I think that helps. Um, but if not, if you're just like, God, it was kind of hard and I wasn't having a lot of fun and I quit like, eh, then maybe, maybe distance running isn't for you at that point. Um, or maybe you just, you know, maybe, you know, maybe not, but that, that's where I think for me, if I was in that situation, I would have a much harder time coping with the DNF. If I just, if I can legitimately say, I just quit on myself. Now, I've, like I said, I've done that on workouts, but that's a little different for me than race day. So, um, you know, having a good, you know, always making good choices was what, uh, my, my, my dear friend, Susie Lemmer has, has said on the show before making, making good choices on race day. And sometimes that means that you need to choose to not run anymore and it sucks but if that's the right choice from a, from a health, from a fitness perspective, then that's the choice that needs to be made. And you need to be okay with that choice. Um, again, easier said than done, but thanks for the question, Melody. Um, just a few questions left. Um, and by few, I mean like seven, something like that. So still, still a decent number. We are, we are definitely going to be in the uncharted territory of longest Q and a episode ever. By the time this one comes to a wrap, uh, but question from Patty says, I'm taking a long break from running due to a hamstring pull. I have been swimming at least three times a week, foam rolling and doing deep or doing, sorry, doing upper body weights. Uh, when I finally get to run again, what should my easing back plan be? My break will most likely be at least four months. Thanks. Well, Patty, hope, hope that uh, your, your hamstring is healing up and, uh, that you're getting close to, to training, uh, getting back to running again, but definitely take it slow. Definitely take it easy. Um, and that may be slower and easier than what you think it's going to be. Um, but, but the, the big key, you know, if you're gonna be out for four months, five months, whatever, whatever it ends up being when you get back to running again, um, the last thing you want to do is go too hard, too quick, re-aggravate the issue and wind up injured again. So, um, I love what you're doing. I love that you're, you're, you're being smart. You're swimming, you're maintaining your fitness, you're foam rolling. You're trying to speed up the recovery process, doing upper body strengthening, doing whatever you can to, to stay, to stay strong and fit. That's fantastic. Um, and it's going to make the recovery or the, the easing back into running go more smoothly and, and go quicker. But again, don't do, don't want to do it too quickly. Don't want to go too fast to get back at it. So, um, you know, probably ease back in with, with a run walk for several weeks. Um, probably start walking first, but hopefully your, your PT or your doctor, whoever you're working with will kind of advise you on some specifics there, but you know, start with, start with walking, maybe start with pedaling a bike. Um, in addition to the swimming, some things that, that are forcing your, your hamstring to work a little bit more, but aren't providing a lot of stress. And then when you start to run, I mean, you know, something as simple as like 10 or 15 seconds of running followed by a few minutes of walking, 10 or 15 seconds of running followed by a few minutes of walking, doing that for several weeks. And then, um, you know, or maybe at least for a week. And then you start to bump it up a little bit, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, a minute. Um, but just really ease back in, really be listening to your body. I mean, this is, that's good advice for any injury situation. When you're coming back, listen to your body. Don't, don't worry about how quickly the, the doctor's protocol says you should go. Don't worry about how quickly others say that, you know, others, you should be back in a couple of weeks. No, worry about how you're feeling, how your body's responding because everybody's different. Uh, you, you know, your, your history is different. Your injury is different. There's no one size fits all. I feel like that's kind of a theme of this episode as well. No one size fits all anything. So ease back into it. Yes. Maybe take a couple extra days off, maybe, you know, two steps forward, one step back. As far as like, you know, you, you increase the, the, the run walk intervals a couple of times, and then, you know, take a, take a couple of, of days to ease back a step on that. Not because you're injured, not because you have to, but just to be safe, just to be safe. Because again, the last thing you want to do is re aggravate that hamstring and wind up, you know, miss another three months or four months for it to heal. So be patient, stick with it. Um, 
There may be some little potholes, some little setbacks along the way, but as long as it's nothing major and you're being smart, making smart decisions, taking a, a DNF from a training day if you need to, um, you should be able to get back relatively smoothly, hopefully, as long as you're just easing. I mean, the big part, easing back in and, and ease a little bit slower maybe than you think you need to. But again, err on the side of caution. Adu, my first question. When is your usual cutoff time for Q&A, like the last day of the month, or how do you decide? So uh, the way we do this around here, I, I guess maybe I haven't explained this recently, um, but the Q&A is always the last quote-unquote regular episode of the month. So I consider the regular episodes to be the interviews because back way back when, when the show started, there were no QT episodes. It was just two interviews a week. Uh, so those were the regular episodes of the show. And then, you know, picked up the, 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 the quick tip episodes on Fridays, um, and I kind of just keep Fridays are for quick tips. Mondays and Wednesdays, those are the, the regular, quote-unquote, episodes of the show. Those are the days that we do interviews. So the last regular episode of the month, which for this month happens to be Wednesday, happens to be Halloween, uh, you know, the, the last Wednesday of the month or the last Monday of the month, whichever is, is later, that's when the QT episode, or that's when the Q&A episode goes out. So, um, you know, for this month, it's a Wednesday. Next month, it's probably a Monday. I don't know, looking at my count. Nope, next month is a Wednesday as well, but it's Wednesday the 28th, so it's not the last day of the month. The last day of the month will actually be the 30th, which will be a QT episode on a Friday, but it's just always either the last Monday or Wednesday of the month is the Q&A episode. And then when I cut off for the questions, it just depends on when the, when the day is. So for a Wednesday episode, I usually record, as I am right now, the day before. So I'm recording this, prepping it, getting it all ready on Tuesday for the show to go out on Wednesday. If Monday happens to be when the Q&A episode goes out, then I'm probably prepping the show on Friday. Uh, and, and anybody that submits questions on Saturday or Sunday, kind of out of luck. Went too late. Um, because you know, I want it to go out Monday morning and these, these shows do take a fair bit of time. You know, as I'm, as I'm standing right now, I'm at four hours of work on this, still have all the post-production work to do. So this is going to be probably a five to six hour episode when it's all said and done. Um, and I can't just throw that together Monday morning, uh, and still, you know, serve my clients and do what I need to do on, on Monday from a coaching perspective. So I get that all ready on Friday. Um, but that is how the Q and A's kind of time frame for the Q and A episodes, a little behind the scenes, a peek behind the kimono on how that works. Uh, next question from Adu says, uh, I'm not going to get on the heart rate training bandwagon and I'm going to add in just yet. Cause he says, but I do acknowledge the value of easy runs and, and keeping the easy runs easy. So question one, can you recommend a good heart rate monitor Two, Can you recommend a book about heart rate training? And last question, what is your take on the latest BQ times? So when it comes to heart rate monitors, without a doubt, the heart rate straps are the best. Now, I know there's a few of you, I've said that to you, like, no, 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 my, my, my watch is accurate. Well, I mean, no, it, it might be, it might be, but statistically, there's no comparing, you know, statistically, like scientifically, statistically studied, there's no comparing uh, a heart rate watch, Fitbit, Garmin, whatever, versus a heart rate strap. It's, the, it's not even comparable, uh, the margin of error. Sometimes the, on the watch, they're, they're, they're bang on, but sometimes they can be way off. And if you're heart rate training, accuracy is kind of important. So you want to make sure you're getting the, the best possible. And not for nothing, but the, the heart rate watches, they don't actually measure your heart rate. They measure the amount of blood that flows through the, the arteries and veins in your wrist. And so, you know, that, that's where your margin of error comes in versus the heart rate strap where it's actually, I don't know, over your heart, actually measures the electrical signals of your heart and actually gets a much more accurate reading, um, and more data. If you're a data nerd, more data that you can use by measuring it at, at, on your chest, measuring it from the heart rate strap. So get yourself a heart rate strap. Which ones do I recommend? Um, don't get the Garmin soft strap. That was the first one that I got. 
and uh, it worked great until it didn't. Like you have to like wash that one all the freaking time, and I don't think about washing mine that often. And so it stopped. Basically, just stopped reading. It stopped. It stopped working at all, and I had to get a new one. Um, and and the other thing to keep in mind is the 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 transmitter. So the Garmin transmitter works great with your Garmin, but it doesn't work with your phone. So you know if you're trying to do something on your phone, uh, it it wouldn't work. So what I ended up doing, what I've what I've gotten. Uh, three straps and two transmitters by the time it's all said and done in my, in my year of heart rate training. I think that, that my, my favorite combination is the Wahoo, um, transmitter and I got the polar strap. Now I think the polar transmitter might work well as well, but I like the Wahoo one because it's, it's both Bluetooth and, um, and T plus, which is, which is, uh, what, what connects to, to my Garmin watch. So uh, I can use the Bluetooth from the heart rate monitor on my phone. So I, that's how I measure my, my heart rate vari- variability, my HRV numbers. Um, and I can use, and I can also use it like on my iPad when I'm using a Peloton workout, I can have my, my heart rate right there on the, on the screen. So I know I'm not going above my thresholds of, of, you know, energy expenditure when I'm doing cross training. Um, but it also then obviously syncs right to my, my watch. So when I'm out for a run, I've got the data right there as well. So, um, I don't know if the polar one does it as well, but the polar strap basically is, is, the, the, you know, you got to make sure that, that the, uh, the, the setting or that, the, that the connector is right. But if you look for, if you look at them on Amazon, they're pretty clear. I've got links in the show notes to the ones that I have. Um, but the polar strap came highly recommended and it, it seems to work very well for me. And like I said, I mean, I could plug the Garmin transmitter in there as well, but I just keep the, the Wahoo one in there. It works great. Um, the, the Wahoo strap that came with the transmitter, I'm not a big fan of like the electrodes are kind of falling apart. Um, so meh, not really keen on that, but, uh, the, the, Polar strap, the Wahoo transmitter, that's that seems to be the jam for me. Uh, as it comes for, as, as about books, I do. Uh, I think that the two books that really made it made it something that I, I believed in was first I read eighty twenty running by Matt Fitzgerald, which is all which really kind of breaks down the idea of why running easy is so important. Um, it's not specific to heart rate training um, as far as that is the only way to go, but it's really eighty percent of your runs need to be easy. It gets into the, some of the vaguely into the, some of the science, keeping it very simple terms. So it makes it easy to understand, which is always appreciated. Uh, it also talks about a lot about Lydiard and you know, the, the, the New Zealanders from the fifties and how dominant they were from running hundred mile weeks while racing 800 meters and how beneficial that was really kind of got my mind going. And then when I, when I took the big, the big, uh, dive into heart rate training was from reading primal endurance, which I thought I was reading that about how to, you know, become more of a fat adapted athlete. But the, fir- the whole first chapter in there, which is the biggest chapter of the book is all about slowing down and heart rate training and, and why it's important and how beneficial it is and how the longer that you, that you run, the longer that you race, the longer distances, the more valuable it is, the more it pays off. That really got my, my attention there. Um, also pretty easy to understand. And if you want to dive a little bit deeper, the big book of endurance by Phil Maffetone, that is pretty much the, the heart rate training Bible. Um, I haven't gone down that route yet. Full disclosure, but, uh, that's, that's, it's like, I think it's like hundreds of like 800 pages, a thousand pages. It's this huge tome of a book, uh, but it's all about heart rate training and why it works and all the science and, and all of that kind of stuff. So you want to get real technical. That is the book for you. Um, and then last question, what do I think about the, the new BQ times? Um, honestly, I don't really have a problem with them. Um, the only issue I have is that it makes it obviously tougher to get, to be able to say that you be cued, you know, and, and that, that some people, that's not a big deal, but, but for some people, I mean, you know, like that's, that's a really big deal and it's just got that much harder. The reason I don't have a big problem with it is that now 
at least for now, at least for these next few years, who knows how long this will, this will continue. But at least for now, if you BQ and you want to run Boston, you're pretty much good to go. You know, um, I mean, we'll have to see how things shake out for next year, uh, you know, for the next qualifying cycle. But if, if recent history is a guide by bumping it down five minutes, um, I don't think there's ever been a cutoff that's been more than five minutes, right? In the, in the last five or 10 years. So if you, if you squeak in by two seconds, you can still run Boston. And I think that's, that's pretty awesome. So, um, you know, I, I haven't been close enough to, to, um, just miss qualifying or qualify, but not qualify by enough. But I feel like I would, it would be an easier pill to swallow to have just missed it than to qualify by a couple of minutes and then have the BAA tell you that, sorry, you qualified, but you didn't qualify good enough. So you can't come run our race. I think that would be a harder pill to swallow. So I, I'm, you know, I mean, it's, it's frustrating because now I'm, I'm that much farther from a BQ, but at the same time, if I can get there in the next several years, um, you know, hopefully I can, I can squeeze under the BQ mark by a few minutes and that, or by, even by a few seconds, and that'll still be enough to get me, get me to Hopkinton. So, um, I mean, I'm not excited for it, but I'm not upset by it or frustrated by it either. I, I, you know, like I said, if, if it means that those that BQ can actually run Boston, then I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. But, uh, great questions I do. And if you have more questions about that heart rate training, cause I know you're going to go down that bandwagon now, just let me know, brother. Um, question from Barb, uh, she says, do you take podcast podcast requests? Absolutely. So if there's somebody that, that you know about, whether it's somebody who wrote a book or some elite or better yet, somebody just like you and I, who, uh, you think has a good story to tell and would be, would be a fun chat to have on the podcast. Let me know. Let me know. Always love getting those, uh, those requests. It actually makes it a little bit easier to get people on the show. Um, because I can say, Hey, a listener requested that I, that I interview you as opposed to just me kind of creeping them out by reaching out to them. So, you know, that helps. Um, and on the flip side of that, those of you that listen to other podcasts, if you think I'd be a good fit, whether it's running or otherwise, feel free to float my name out there to those hosts, because I'm always excited to be, uh, answering the questions instead of asking them. So thank you, Barb. But, uh, and yes, you know, if, if, uh, you think that, that, uh, Mark Kukuzela, I think would be a, a good, a good person to have, I'm certainly going to reach out to him. So thank you for that suggestion. Um, two questions left, I think, uh, unless somebody else pops in here as we go, um, from Jen, what is your opinion on what reasonable post-race food would be? The RD of our local marathon told me last night, it's the thing that RDs get the most complaints about. No, let's see here. No matter what, and I listened to your Seven Bridges report this morning, so I got to thinking about it. Here, bagels and fruit are and popsicles are pretty standard, and there are a few longer races that have brunches. However, with the usual breakfast fare, also pretty nice. However, I've been to some races that have either uh, full freaking buffets at the end, which seem totally over the top, and or only junk food with no quote unquote real food options, which seems to me a bit of a weird message given that these given these are athletes. I'm never hungry after racing, so this doesn't affect me directly, but interested in your thoughts. So yeah, if you listen to the Seven Bridges recap last week, I, I did kind of, that was kind of the big thing I hit them on is that the post-race food was poor. It was spaghetti or honey buns, and neither of which are on my diet at all. Um, no way am I eating either of those things. Um, but to answer your question, Jen, and, and uh, I think I can really empathize with the RD because I, you know, the, the race director from your local race saying that, that, that they're never going to get it right. They're never going to get it right. There's, there's too many people that have too many dietary preferences, do too many different dietary needs that, you know, and, and the budget that I'm sure goes into post-race, you know, refreshments and spread isn't endless. So you got to find things that fit the budget. Um, it's, it's tough. It's tough. I think the biggest thing would be just to have some variety, 
You know, like, like there might be some runners that all they want is junk food afterwards. Well, have some junk food. You know, there might be some that, that, that actually want something healthy, that want some fruit or want something, something light and healthy, some real food, if you will have some of those options, you know, and then maybe have something that sticks to your ribs a little bit more or, or, you know, the, the bagel and the, and the schmear or the, the peanut butter, things like that. That's, that's fine. Um, I don't know what, what my perfect would be. You know, I, I, it's one of those things where I like, I feel like I know when I don't like it, but if there was better things there, like, I don't know what I would, would choose. I think for me, it would really kind of be uh, coffee. Really? I mean, honestly, that's, that's it. If there's coffee at the end of a race, black coffee, I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, and, and that was another thing that was missing from Sembridge. They had cappuccinos and French vanillas and hazelnuts and all this shit. Just give me freaking black coffee. You know, is that asking too much? Um, so, so give me, give me a cup of coffee. Give me some, um, some, some fruit maybe, you know, is, is, is something that, that, that seems to go well for me. Um, I'm usually not super hungry after a race either. Uh, but something light, you know, maybe, maybe a little, a little something sweet, a little chocolate or something like that. But again, now, now we start getting into too many disparate pieces and it makes it hard. So it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of the beer afterwards. Um, although I did have a, a race where I had a, a mimosa afterwards. That wasn't bad. It was just sweet enough, but not too sweet. Um, but these days, you know, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty simple, pretty simple creature. I'd rather, you know, take a shower, cool down a little bit, get the appetite back and then really go feast on, uh, I'm, I'm a burger and fries kind of guy after a race. So, you know, go, go to some really good greasy spoon and, and just crush. Um, but right after the race, you know, some fruit would be great. Something, something light, something that's not too, I mean, spaghetti and meatballs. That just, ugh, that just sets on your stomach and little Debbie's honey buns. Come on, man. Come on, man. Uh, so, so yeah, something fresh, something light. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll try not to complain too much because, I don't eat the standard runner's fare. So, you know, it's, it's maybe that's on me, but, but also, like I said, in the, in the review, think of those that are a little bit different. Think of those that have celiac or think of those that, that have a, a legitimate gluten allergy, not just a, maybe a preference like I have or a slight sensitivity, but legitimately life-threatening issues. Um, and maybe, maybe try to have something that's, that's, uh, that fits for them as well, because they, they came to run your race too. So, you know, having some variety, I think is, is a good thing. Um, and then last question, this one just popped in as we were going. So I don't even, haven't even read this one yet. Totally off the cuff from Deb says uh, first time caller, long time listener. I'm still recovering from hamstring tendonitis off and on past year. That's affecting, uh, my form knee, no cartilage after an ACL replacement. Any advice outside of strength training, rolling <clears throat> and laying off. Also any advice in general for those quote unquote older runners with prior ACL replacement surgeries. Thanks, Denny. You're awesome. Well, thank you, Deb. Uh, sorry to hear that your, your hamstring is still bothering you. Um, you know, with, without having the, the ACL, um, you know, there's just kind of a, a couple of things that, uh, or maybe, uh, sorry, having the ACL, but not a lot of cartilage. So, um, obviously the, there's a little bit of, um, you know, kind of some, some force issues that could happen there. Uh, you know, trying to, to absorb the force without having the cartilage to kind of do that for you. Um, that said, you know, strength training is great. Balance work is who knew, but apparently you can get to a point where the garage band just stops recording. And we got to that point. So as I was saying, balance work is good. Uh, working on your balance, working above and below the joint. So working on your calf strength, strength, working on calf flexibility is going to be helpful. Same with your, with your hamstring, working on hamstring flexibility, hamstring strength, quad flexibility, quad strength, working on proprioception, which is, which is your body's ability to know where it is in space. So again, that's a lot of balance work, uh, and, and kind of some things like that. Um, a lot of rehab exercises are going to be good for you. Uh, you know, and then, and then, 
you know, maybe it's some playing with some variables as, as, as you get older, as we all get older, things change a little bit. So it's, it's maybe a little bit more cross training, a little bit less running, uh, a little bit more foam rolling, a little bit more yoga, uh, things like that to kind of help, help with the recovery process, help our bodies to adapt to what we've got going on and to stay strong and to keep, keep us moving in the right direction. So it's going to be a lot of, of variables, a lot of, of trial and error, um, maybe doing some myofascial work, maybe getting massage work once in a while, seeing the chiropractor, making sure there's no alignment issues. Just, just trying to shore up all of your, your bases, all your loose ends, Deb. Uh, and hopefully you'll get some relief soon. Uh, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating because definitely rest is the best thing, but you know, you want to, you want to keep moving. You want to keep going forward. So it's, it's finding some things that work for you as well. And that's where maybe some cross training would come in, uh, to, to really be helpful to keep things, keep you, keep your fitness, uh, and keep, keep working in the right direction, but not continuing to stress, that, that tendon so much that the tendonitis continues on, uh, every time you're running. Um, so hopefully, hopefully you can find some, some relief from that. Um, but it's, it's tough. It's tough, but definitely, definitely keep moving as best you can. Um, and hopefully for the first time caller, long time listener, I hope that that advice helps a little bit, although I don't feel like it's anything earth shattering because I don't think there is anything earth shattering there. It's, it's, it's little things. It's stretching, it's flexibility, it's massage, it's taking care of your body, eating well, sleeping well, uh, all those types of things play a difference and, and play a factor. And hopefully we'll, uh, you can, you can find the right, the right mixture there, Deb, to keep you, keep you healthy and get back to running pain-free. Uh, Lord knows you've had enough issues with your running past. Um, and for those that, that remember that episode of, of Deb getting hit by the car, hit by the truck while training for uh, a marathon, um, know that that's the, the, to be the case. And hopefully you can get, uh, get this hamstring tendonitis behind you and just enjoy running pain-free uh, again. So thank you for the question, Deb. Thanks for chiming in. Hopefully it won't be the last time your caller for the old Q and a episodes. But, uh, with that goodness gracious, we are closing in on an hour and a half. This guy, apparently this guy likes to talk and apparently my voice is hurting. Gotta, gotta get some, some, some fluids in here, uh, and, and, uh, rest the old vocal cords for the rest of the day. But, uh, thank you guys for listening. Hope this was helpful. Thank you all for the questions. Once again, if you want to get your questions on next month, head over to the Facebook group. Diz runs uh, Dizruns Tribe on Facebook or facebook.com slash Dizruns will take you right there. Click to join us. Join the party. Join the, the shenanigans. There's, there's no shortage of that for sure. Uh, have a little, have a good time. Hopefully uh, we're working towards the goal of being the best uh, Facebook group, best running group on Facebook. So uh, <clears throat> come check us out and see if it's something that you enjoy. Um, and last but not least, thanks to DKMS for the continued support. DKMS.org. Text the word amazing to 50555 for more information. Get yourself in the pool of potential donors you might, uh, you might be able to get that call and save a life, um, which would be pretty darn, I mean, pretty powerful stuff. You can, if you can save a life by donating a little bit of, of bone marrow, um, boy, doesn't, doesn't get better than that. So thank you to DKMS for the work they're doing. And with that, as my voice, I can feel it fading. I don't know if you can hear it or not, but it is, it is going. So we're going to go ahead and put a bow on this thing as we get to the hour and a half mark, the longest episode, I think, in uh, Diz Runs with Radio or Diz Runs Radio history. Uh, thank you guys for the questions. Uh, no need to try to outdo yourself next month, although I'm sure that'll probably happen. Maybe these will keep getting longer and longer. Maybe we'll start breaking up into two episodes if we start getting enough questions. Who knows? But uh, until next time, please do well. Take good care. Thank you all for the questions. Have a great rest of your day, and uh, we'll talk soon. Take care, guys.